The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. As we constantly move forward, there's a continuing and urgent need for higher education. It's necessary for tomorrow's future and for a dynamically changing workforce. As the need for education is changing, so is education itself. Welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education with your host, Dave Goldberg. In this program, we'll discuss the complex changes that are being made to higher education today, and we'll help you stay ahead of tomorrow. If you're a student, educator, or in the workforce. Now, here's Dave Goldberg. Good day and welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. I'm Dave Goldberg. I'm your show host. And Big Beacon is a movement to transform higher education at bigbeacon.org. In every episode, we explore some of the innovators and innovations that are changing the world of higher education all around us. You can follow tweeting of the show, ask questions, or make comments about the show during the program on Twitter at hashtag BigBeacon. The first segment of Big Beacon Radio is sponsored by Olin College, a new kind of engineering college, a privately funded national lab for education redesign with a passion for creating inspiring learning experiences. Find out more at olin.edu. And today we're um, uh, genuinely pleased uh, to have uh, with us uh, David David Wright um, from Australia, a consultant, uh, businessman, and uh, all-around good guy. Welcome to the show, David. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome. I'm happy to be here. Well, and um, want to hear you're, you're involved in so many things. I'm not sure that uh, an hour segment's going to do us justice. But in our first segment, we like to get to know our guests a little bit better. And and you're um, you're chairman of the Higher Education Consulting Group. You're executive chairman of the Global Access Project. Now you're COO of something called CMCRC. Um, and you've been an academic leader and the CEO of a major telecom network. But let's uh, let's go back in the time machine. What were uh, some of the early influences that uh, put you on your life's path? I guess uh, there are really two um, major ones for me. Uh, I mean, my parents uh, were, were quite influential in my uh, upbringing for, for similar reasons uh, in the sense that my father left school in year nine um, and uh, to join a band, um, and ended up uh, being a milit- doing military service, and uh, and ended up running some quite uh, large uh, uh, corporations, working uh, intensely um, with them and quite successfully over the period of time. But never had a formal education process. And his view was always quite cynical of education. You know, to, um, he would use terms like, you know, I can be book smart, but can I be world smart? And and um, my mother came from a country town um, doing sciences and things like that, and, and that wasn't really a place at that time to do science for a, for a young uh, woman at that stage. Ended up taking a path because some of those things were really not seen as being open to her. And I always had kind of in the back of my mind that um, that uh, whether education was serving uh, 
them in a, them well, but also what are the other skills that you needed to, to succeed in business in spite of um, uh, of not having access to, to education, uh, for example. So that they were pretty. Uh, certainly influential in the early stages. Um, yes. But as I've gone through my career, um, there have been some people who are really uh, um, have been influential past that. Um, I worked in a place called the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, which is kind of a, a hybrid of the, um, uh, the Justice Commission uh, um, Justice Department in the U.S. and the Federal Trade Commission in the U.S. In Australia, yep. they kind of merged into one entity. Um, and there was a chairman there uh, called Alan Fells. Um, and um, he, what he struck with me was a real desire to learn. He was a guy who I met who was intimidatingly brilliant and smart. And, and I was a fairly young uh, uh, law and economics student um, at that stage, um, really just cutting my um, chops, as it were, very green behind the ears. Yep. Here was a guy who was basically at the top of his tree in the world who still wanted to learn all the time and still felt he could even um, talk to me and say, well, you know, why did you do that and learn? And, and here's a guy who he didn't need to do that, and he was he sort of struck me always as someone who liked uncertain times and liked to learn and probably one of the most influential people. And I've, prob- I've never actually told him that. I've never spoken to him about it since then because yes. I moved on to other careers. So interesting when you, know, when you look back and, and there's someone in your life that, uh, that y- who you haven't been able to talk to about those things and, how, and you think back about how uh, influential they are. And I was thinking about, as you were speaking, the Mahatma Gandhi's expression about learning like you're going to live forever and living like there's no tomorrow. I don't know <laughs> if I have it exactly right, but I, I was, it, yeah. it just seemed, yeah, it seemed so nice. Hey, so... Um, we're all, on the program, we're also interested in, and maybe you've already told us about it, but we're interested in these unleashing experiences that where mm-hmm. someone uh, goes their own way. And you know, certainly we've heard your uh, parents' influence um, and this other influence. Um, but are there, are there other experiences or individuals where somewhere you and, – and, and it can happen in different ways and they're not – there's no one – right way to be unleashed, but uh, where somehow someone helps you or you find it in yourself to have the courage to take initiative uh, to, to be able to go your own way? There, there certainly was. When, um, you mentioned about me being a, a CEO of a national telecom operator, and, and the story of that was quite an interesting one in the sense that I was put into a extraordinarily entrepreneurial really pushing the boundaries, um, uh, 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 telecom operator in Australia, operated by two uh, people who uh, some people say are brilliant, some people said were scoundrel, some people say <laughs> were any combination in between the two of them. Sure. Um, and I was put in there as a lawyer for one of their major shareholders to, to, um, to basically to, to um, uh, uh, invest in a new thing, a mobile network for them, which was a huge deal for them. They were gone from relatively medium-sized, $100 million company to, to, um, to then having to go out and raise the money and build a mobile network. So, you know, through that process, we raised a bit over $2 billion, um, employed about 4,000 staff and, and, and built and ran an, an operator. Um, but when I started in that, I was sitting there as a young lawyer um, with these borderline brilliant, borderline crazy guys who were, who were running this company, 
yeah. who first were very nervous about me um, uh, and because I was there as a kind of, you know, a, an appointee of their shareholder. Um, I was yeah. a lawyer. They didn't really like lawyers uh, at all. Um, and yet they um, created an environment which is so empowering for younger people or people who wanted to do things differently. Everything was about don't do it like the they've done it before. Do it differently. We wouldn't be here if we didn't do it differently. And this message started off originally by scaring the bejesus out of me because I was young. I didn't really know what I was doing, to be frank, in terms of running a company. I was learning fast. And at the same time as not really knowing what I was doing, they were pushing me to go out and do it differently. Well, I didn't even know what doing it normally was, let alone doing it differently. Um, but they had a complete faith that if you look at a problem and you try and design that problem um, to give you the solutions that you want, that you can do things differently, you can go, you can go and do it. And, and ultimately, when I, um, uh, 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 but prior to getting offered the role of CEO, as I said, I was first just a lawyer, right. I was brought into a room where I'd had an argument with some people about um, how I thought we should do things. And I thought I was getting fired. Um, and so I walked in really kind of pumped up to say, you know, I think this is the right way of doing this. They said, oh, we heard you had this discussion. You didn't agree with these people, and, and you wanted to do it differently, and they wanted to do it this way. And I was, yes, and very defensive. I thought, oh, this is the end for me. And they said, that's exactly what we want, and we want you to be CEO. And it was rare that I had nothing that I could think of saying. <laughs> um, uh, but I was completely... Um, uh, you know, dulled by, I kind of walked out thinking, is this really happening? But what they did is they, they said, it's really easy to find reasons why you can't do something. They wanted people who would go out and have the courage to do it and the courage to fail. And if they failed and they were going to get fired, that was okay. They still were going to do it. Um, and that was enormously empowering for me and the team around me have all gone on to have very successful careers um, and, and really from an environment that was created by borderline crazy people, um, but very bright people who really just focused on don't do what was being done before, think of it differently. And this has kind of you know, um, led me into telecoms because at that time, telecoms was all about government-owned operators doing it the way they'd already do, doing it, building networks. It was changing massively rapidly. Yeah. Um, and I would say the same thing about education now. Um, that we're in this huge transition point where the gains are going to be about doing things differently and trying new things. So um, that was a real unleashing for me because I was very doubtful in my own mind about doing this and, and whether that would be um, supported or whether I'd be successful in doing it. And they certainly gave me the confidence to do that and, and um, uh, it's been a you know, very much a sort of base stone for my career going forward. Wow. Great. I, I, I love that story. And this is an unfair question because there's probably so much a learning from that experience. But as you think back on that experience, you know, what are a couple, one, two ta big takeaways that, that you still feel today from that experience? Yeah, there's something that I do now. And, and, and coming up to this discussion, I haven't really thought about it much since then, but uh, um, uh, one of the things that, that they really encourage you to do at that stage is to say, what do you want to achieve? Then writing down how you're going to get there, which all sounds pretty simple, but then they added another step. Now, if I could do better than that, what would it be? Mm. How am I going to do better? 
There are so many times in that environment where I went back to the team and said, we've got a great deal. We've raised $2 billion. It looks fantastic. You know, uh, really kind of pretty impressed with what we've been able to achieve, shocked that we'd got there, and then have them turning around going, now show me how you're going to do better. Mm. And sort of at the first couple of times they do that, you almost uh, are, are, are upset by it. You're going, we've been working you know, incredible hours of a great team to get it here, and you're saying you want to do better. Um, but it has, it's been the big takeaway for me of not ever being really satisfied. At the same time, being very conscious of making sure the team knows they're making progress and they're doing well and they're achieving things. But that, that was a real, because it's a shock at the start when you think you've done something that you didn't think was possible to do, and then someone turns around and says, go and do better. Um, uh, but, but, I, you know, um, I've carried that with me, um, and I do it even to this day right down to I'm planning this week's work. <laughs> you know, what am I going to do? I'm going to be happy with that. You know, what, how am I going to prioritise it? Now, how could I do better? Um, mm. And I, it's Beautiful. kind of yeah. beaten into me, I guess, in a nice way. Yeah, nice. So, and and actually, so it, it's actually, you know, sometimes the show's easier to have smooth transitions from question to question, but, um, you know, so at one point in your career, so you're, you know, okay, so you're a lawyer, then you're a CEO, and then at one point you ended up being uh, a vice president of a, a major Australian uh, university. It's not that often that we have people transition from the business world to uh, high levels of the, of, of the academic world. How did, how did that come to pass? Um, I guess there's both a, a term that I like to use is kind of strategic serendipity, you know, in the sense that um, uh, I've set out a kind of path, but things just seem to fall in a direction. Yeah. I had yeah. been in Silicon Valley um, uh, with a startup company of mine in the in the software telecom software area. Um, I was keen to come home. We just finished our second round. It was right in the middle of the tech wreck, so it was a really uh, difficult place to be, but we were really happy that we got our second round away um, uh, in there, and, and my wife and I were quite keen to come home and have kids, and, and I sort of said, well, what do I like about things and, and work and challenges that I have, and where where are they, where would that be in another market? And I looked at two markets. One was education, the other one was healthcare. Um, and so I asked a couple of people, you know, uh, particularly a, a VC in Australia, in, who was based in Silicon Valley but an Australian, um, who's now the head of the largest research, government research organisation in Australia. And I asked him, you know, what do you think are, are places that might be interesting uh, around this area? I'm interested in healthcare education and, uh, you know, I'd like to have a look at them because I think they're going to go through the same changes as, as telecom. And I love that. So can I have, you know, I want to have a go somewhere else. Uh, and try something new, always learning. And he said, well, hey, there's this university called Macquarie University. You'd know about it, being an Australian, big university. Um, they're looking for some people who bring something new to the table. They've been growing to a certain stage, but they want to change. They want some step changes. And their VC, a guy called Stephen Schwartz, is really um, uh, uh, keen on being different and approaching things differently. I think you'll get along great. Um, so let's uh, um, connect the two of you together. Um, and the end result was that um, uh, I went in and did a small project um, uh, turning around a subsidiary um, and getting an idea of feel for each of us. Could I do this? Because I was, I was very concerned that I would not like being in the university sector. It came with 
um, a lot of uh, uh, challenges in terms of really um, uh, not having a great track record of change, not having a great track record of respecting or accepting any person who's not an academic at a senior level. And here I was basically second in line in the whole university, um, making calls that affected academia and affected research and affected other things. Um, Would that be successful? And, And through this transition period, uh, it became clear that I was both right and wrong at the same time. Um, the issues I was concerned in were absolutely real uh, and absolutely a problem, um, and yep. it very much affected the lack of, um, of senior business people operating in universities and having success. But on the second part, I had a uh, a, a president who wanted that to change. He was very upfront about that and said yep. that I'll give you the air cover that you need, I'll give you the support that you need, just don't surprise me, and let's make sure we deliver what we say. Um, and uh, like all through my career, it's been very personal for me. I want to work with people I like um, and I respect, and and uh, it was really him and him really alone that, that um, uh, satisfied me that we could do this. Um, and we, we and he, he absolutely lived up to his word in every step since I was there, which meant sometimes we weren't popular. But um, but that's how I got there. Um, I got wow. there really a bit reluctantly, but um, uh, but but he convinced me otherwise. Well, and that's led to a number of other things. We need to take a little bit of a break, but when we come back from the break, I want to talk a little bit about what you've been up to uh, since. Uh, well, maybe talk a little bit more about your takeaways from that position and then and then how that's led to the things that the the things that you're doing now. How's that sound? Sounds good. This is Big Beacon Radio with our special guest David Wright. Stay with us and in the next segment we're going to talk about what David's been up to uh, recently uh, down under. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Each week, Larry Sternberg joins Dr. Kim Turnage to explore management issues from culture to discipline in Managing to Make a Difference. Join Talent Plus for 60 minutes of dynamic conversation, including real-life management examples helping you manage teams across the globe. This series airs on Voice America, the business channel, Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Pacific. 
Managing to Make a Difference, every Thursday afternoon with Larry Sternberg and Dr. Kim Turnage. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call one 866 472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. The second segment is sponsored by Three Joy Associates. Get the training, coaching, and change leadership consultation to help transform your organization. And... Also, uh, it's sponsored by the book that is Transforming Higher Education, A Whole New Engineer, The Coming Revolution in Engineering Education at WholeNewEngineer.org. It's not just for engineers anymore. And we're back with David Wright in Australia. And, and David, we were talking uh, this marvelous uh, unleashing trajectory that you've had in your career. And we were just talking about this uh, stint uh, of being a vice president at a as a as a non-academic at a at a an Australian university, and um, I'll ask the same question I asked before. What what are you? What's the big takeaway that kind of sticks with you um, from that experience? Uh, so I guess there are two parts, and and one is that um, the potential for universities to achieve far more if mm-hmm. they can. Um, be much more creative and innovative about how they operate um, is is almost beyond belief. Um, the capacity to improve people's lives through education, the capacity to address issues um, uh, is is extraordinary, and those opportunities come up a lot. Um, uh, uh, on the negative side, the capability of the institutions to take those opportunities um, is 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 re- severely challenged. By both capability at the at the middle and senior levels to to make these type of changes, yep. the structure of how universities operate to to make changes um, uh, really provides some 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 incredible challenges, um, and um, uh, and lastly that there is a an odd. Um, a realization or lack of realization about the value of doing things a little differently and bringing people in, which would not be accepted publicly, but just look at how universities operate. And the example I'll give you is that most universities um, will, uh, um, uh, uh, will struggle to come up with really effective strategic planning processes that say anything more than what any other university might say, and yeah. implementing them. Um, to, to, to really make some severe changes there um, uh, for many universities is quite limited. Not all, but, but certainly uh, many of them. And yet, ironically, universities will have whole schools that focus on training high-level strategic planning for the best strategic planners in the world, whether that's their business school or their strategy groups in their, their um, uh, arts faculties and, and um, uh, business and finance faculties and science and innovation or whatever it might be, actually produce absolute leaders in there, but they don't have that level of leadership often in their institution. And it's, a, it's kind of an irony 
um, that you would um, profess to produce the best in this and how important it is for society, but yet not necessarily approach it in the same way yourself. And I'll give you an example of one area that we've worked with, and this resonated with me particularly in the um, uh, University of Illinois story in a whole new engineer. Um, one mm. of the Australian universities was looking at introducing some new um, creative intelligence and innovation programs that taught competencies um, around design and innovation and, and, and problem solving um, uh, to traditional students in, in the engineering, um, uh, law and other um, uh, faculties across, across the university. Um, and they went about uh, positively trying to do this and yet um, had tremendous trouble trying to get it launched within the university to try and get people to teach, to try and get spaces, to try and... They certainly, um, you know, the individual faculties didn't want to give up any of their units to a new unit that was coming in, all yep. these types of things. And so what the uni did is they, they let it skunk works itself outside of the normal structure and grow very, very... Um, uh, uh, grow in it on its own um, basis with a lot of entrepreneurial culture, a lot of, um, you know, uh, uh, flexible processes, but right outside of the traditional uh, model. They couldn't get in the normal semesters. They couldn't get the teachers the same way. They couldn't get anything like that, but they let the students determine it. Fast forward a couple of years, it's now um, arguably the most successful course in Australia in terms of number of students, graduate outcomes, the level of graduates who apply to get in the courses in the top three or four in the whole country, including medicine yep. and, and very high levels. But it was almost in spite of itself that it created this. Now, in that case, the leadership was prepared to take some of those risks, but the actual organisation wasn't. Um, and I saw that a lot in my... Um, uh, um, uh, uh, takeaways from the universities that they can achieve these brilliant things. They can make big differences, but it is the organisation able to make those kind of changes. The excuses that are used around industrial action, um, to me, are, are more about just planning the process better. They're not about that's a reason not to change. No, that's and that's so interesting. And 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 the success of of in that case follows what well you're talking about. I mean, we're talking about teaching people how to be strategic and how to change. So John Cotter talks exactly about creating a dual operating system like that and 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 allowing the thing to blossom outside the normal culture. But oftentimes, people aren't even clever enough to do that. They try to they try to grow it inside, and and the culture. What uh, Drucker said, uh, culture eats strategy for lunch, and so the the lunch of change gets eaten by the existing culture uh, before it even gets off the ground. So that success story is is um, it, it's interesting in that it, it it took place separately, but that's actually that's actually one of the keys to to getting it right. Comment. And, and the negative voice, I guess, in that sense, is it's quite rare. Um, uh, there are literally thousands of. Uh, um, courses in Australia, um, and yes. uh, less than a handful would fall into this category. It, it is interesting. We're seeing more. We're seeing more of this, and we're seeing people recognize the this as a principle of change. A few weeks ago on the show, we had uh, the example of uh, the Hershey Medical Campus of Penn State University, the main medical campus 
putting a, a, a regional campus in the University Park campus, which is the main campus, and and doing things that were along the lines of, of some of the best practices like Oland and elsewhere, having students be a part of the design. And, and so we're, you know, anyways, it's, I, 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 I take the, the point that you're making that it's, it, it's easy to, uh, and I agree with the point that you're making that there's a lot being left on the table. Actually, I wanted to go back to that. You know, so you, you actually talked to, uh, and, and I don't know that someone's made the point as clearly as you have, but what what are universities leaving on the table? You talked about the potential. Is there some way to, to identify the things that you've seen that are being left on the table? Yeah, I think some aspects um, uh, are relatively uh, obvious in the sense of um, areas of the market which have not been able to benefit from access to education um, either um, because it's difficult to access or just because of culture. So one um, uh, example uh, of this that people talk a lot about um, is uh, uh, women in engineering or women in STEM as a group that is well known to be a missed opportunity. People are focusing on how they address that, but it's been known for quite some time. Um, uh, When people look at the education, um, part of it is in the design itself. And so um, in Australia, for example, um, there if you go to the Business Council of Australia, um, is a peak um, industry body um, uh, talking about weaknesses in education, and you go back to the late 60s or the early 70s, um, they will say that students have poor communication skills, um, poor problem-solving uh, you know, um, uh, uh, and they won't necessarily talk about innovation, but they'll use the same sorts of terms. You go to the 80s, you'll get the same thing. You go to the 90s, you'll get the same thing. You go to the 10,000s, you'll get the same thing. Um, and yet, there are very few um, business courses in Australia which have as a minimum communication skills, problem-solving, all these types of things. So it's left on the table because you have the student with an opportunity to to increase their value to society and into the community. You have them there for three years, five years, whatever it might be. You've got a clear need um, and yet not really designing to do it. And what will happen is you'll have these uh, elective things that people can go and join. But when I did um, commerce back in the... I'm showing my age, but in the 80s, um, there was a transition between industry uh, and uh, and university in terms of industry training uh, and university training. And one yeah. of the quid pro quos of that is industry said every commerce student needs to know how to use computers. Um, and so um, I did, uh, you know, computer programming, information systems or whatever else as critical courses, but they were yeah. um, uh, uh, required. They're not elective yeah. Um, yeah. as part of my course. But since then, we leave those things uh, on the table um, there are also large groups of, there are a number of communities in Australia where the students don't really get past um, what we would call the ninth grade here. Um, they don't go on to high school. They don't go on to university. These students are, are as bright as anybody else, but they don't see a path towards education as having value to them. It's yeah. a massive opportunity in terms of just pure, if I look at the business side, volume of students. Um, an impact. Um, And the last thing I would say would be students with a disability, and we can talk a little bit later about my um, uh, social venture there. Um, But um, 
the attitude towards students with a disability um, uh, really leaves a tremendous amount of talent on the table into the society that's not looked at effectively by, by allowing those students to access the education. Uh, and this is a large number. In the US and Australia, the number of students with disability is somewhere between uh, uh, 20 and 25% of all students. So we're not talking about a small segment. Um, but that's a large group where universities can benefit by getting better talent, more students, more yeah. impact, society yeah. can benefit, but we're not designing for those outcomes. Well, and I, and I want to probe a little bit, you know, so we've talked, we've talked about, um, you know, some of your early career experiences. After leaving the university, uh, you put out your shingle as a, as a consultant. You started a social enterprise that you, you just mentioned, and I'm not sure which hat you want to talk about, but I, I, so uh, maybe, uh, you know, go ahead and talk about whichever one uh, is, seems most important to talk about right now. Yeah, look, um, the, the two things sort of followed, one kind of followed the other. So um, I had finished, um, uh, when I say finished my role at the university, what had happened is we'd delivered as a team the objectives that we had in our plan uh, for the yep. university, and we were announcing that um, to our council, which is the independent oversight board for the university. And then um, within at that meeting and within days, most of the senior executives announced their retirement or, um, or that they were leaving. They felt that, you know, the old leave the stage while the applause is still going was a good opportunity. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, and I was sitting there going, oh, hold on, no one told me this was going to happen. Um, uh, and um, we had such a great team um, that that I that I felt that maybe it was a, a time for me to move on. But at the same time, I loved the work. So I said to myself, how do I design a role where I can keep doing what I'm doing uh, uh, for this university, but I can avoid as many committees as I possibly can. Um, <laughs> And I uh, thought, well, hold on, I'll be, if I set up a consulting firm, then I can be used, but I don't have to go and um, sit on the, these um, uh, tenuous and, and um, strenuous committee structures. So I set up Higher Education Consulting Group and took um, 10 of my um, key staff that I had um, worked with that I thought were fantastic into that organisation, and we've been... Um, acting uh, for a number of universities and research institutes, companies and investors in education over the last few years. And I, I'm happy that that business has grown um, so well that uh, towards the end of last year, I thought it's time for me to let the baby loose. Um, and I you know, employed a new CEO leader and moved on to the board. And, and I hope that, that um, I can help that company to keep growing. Um, and there, our, our view was... We kind of um, tried to build an organisation which was in many ways a, a, an anti-consultant. And I know you talk about unconferences and, and, yeah. and things like this. And our view is that we, we needed to co-design and co-develop things, that it wasn't good enough for universities to outsource what we consider to be core business, which is setting your new future, designing your change. Do it yourself, but you can have people to help you do that. Um, and so that's most of what that firm does. As a result of, um, so we were plugging along, um, and while I was at Macquarie, um, I'd mentioned, um, you might have got from the context before, that I was really interested in where there was unexplored talent. Um, where could we get great students? Um, we're not a, we weren't the top university in the country. We had to fight and be really strategic about where we got students for. So where was a big pool of brilliant students that no one was really going after? 
And we focused on a couple of segments. Um, one of them was um, uh, over 55 um, yep. students who are in, in what we call third-wave students. Um, other students uh, were the disconnected students, so those students who'd done a, a uh, polytechnic-type degree or they'd done a, an undergraduate some time ago but really hadn't been in the education system for some time. And then the biggest segment of all were students um, with sensory disabilities. Mm. Um, and uh, so quite often universities, as well as companies, look at a person with disability as in one with one vision in mind, which is uh, you know, uh, uh, multiple physical and intellectual disabilities in a, in a, a wheelchair or electric um, uh, um, assistance device. Um, and so they have a picture in their mind which, which resonates with them as expensive, um, want to do a good job, but you know, th- this is a really big challenge. Yeah. When you do the analysis and the data, you find out that isn't a, a way of categorizing people with disabilities. Um, that in fact there's a very broad, broad and diverse set, but the largest number have sensory disabilities in the sense of blindness, deafness, uh, dyslexia, autism, these types of groups, where their issue is nothing to do with their ability to be brilliant and succeed at university. Um, they don't have an intellectual disability which prevents them from being successful. They just can't access education. The current system of I'm blind, I turn up to a law faculty, the person writes up on the blackboard, there's no electronic notes, um, there's nothing that I can use. That's a pretty confronting environment for yep. someone who might be, end up being a brilliant lawyer. Yep. So we started a project within Macquarie to see if we could um, be a world leader in this market. We uh, were part of a formulated group called the Liberated Learning Consortium, which included IBM, UMass, Boston, Princeton, uh, Nuance, um, Harvard, yep. a number of other people to look at this type of thing. And in that intervening period, I resigned from the, from the university and, and was really disappointed that I couldn't keep with that because that was the thing I loved in my, in my guts more than pretty much anything else. Yep. And I got a call one night to say, Macquarie's shutting the project down. Um, and... The project had two aspects of it. One was strategy and one was just purely helping students who are currently studying to get their textbooks for next week and their notes for next week. And a number of students were going to be affected by this. So we said, look, we've been really successful in our consulting business and in some of my previous investments, I had some reasonable wins. Um, I wanted to do something that I could be proud of uh, more than that. So I employed um, some of those team members and said, "Let's, let's do it ourselves. Uh, let's cool. grow this. And that became Global Access Project. It's early on in the picture, but um, we help about 20 universities uh, in, a, in Australia and overseas on, on um, uh, accessibility in education, some government departments. Um, uh, but, but most of our day-to-day job still is addressing um, the weaknesses in the system, and that is providing basic uh, accessibility conversion student services to students around the country. Beautiful. We need to take another another break, but let's let's come back and and um, talk a little bit about education transformation in Australia and your your take on it, given given these activities, and also talk a little bit about what's next for you. How's that? Sounds great. This is Big Beacon Radio with our special guest David Wright, and the next segment we're going to do just that. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. 
We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings of the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our wall. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Tune in every week for the Ellis Martin Report. Our program will bring you the news and information that you need each week. We look at publicly traded small and mid-cap companies from a variety of sectors. We'll talk to key people in the industry to bring you the foreground and background of new and -and up-and-comers for potential investment. Please remember, invest only at your own risk. The Ellis Martin Report is meant for informational purposes only. Tune in every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Business. Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. 5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. And our final segment is sponsored by Big Beacon's upcoming webinar. Join us Wednesday, 29 March uh, 2017 at 4 p.m. Eastern for our webinar on four reasons why everybody needs a coach. Learn the four ways coaching can help your academic career and learn how you can join Big Beacon's free drop-in coaching sessions today. Go to bigbeacon.org to sign up or write to me, Dave Goldberg, at deg at bigbeacon.org to find out more. And we're, we're, we're back in this uh, third and final segment with our, our guest, David Wright, from Australia. And, and David, we were ta- just talking about uh, your experiences both with um, yeah, both in consulting and, and with the uh, – with the access project and and um, I guess you know, we we met um, in, I guess through a whole new engineer and and you were noticing and this is my perspective on it but you were noticing that in some of your um, your your consulting work that people were having this appetite for this more authentic emotional cultural kind of transformation but were having having trouble kind of going about it is is that anyways that's my characterization how would how would you say it yeah well certainly we had seen um through consistently through all of our university clients a um a desire based on on really on a couple of drivers so um one driver is a you know is a government driver and and universities are, in australia are certainly um expert sure. at uh, reacting to government drivers, which might ultimately, you know, influence um, uh, their funding uh, and how they're they're going to be treated. And the government 
came out um, quite strongly setting up whole new organisations around improving uh, mm. Australia's innovation capability, um, and particularly that Australia had done very, very poorly at translating um, uh, university-based research um, into industry. In, in fact, we were right down the bottom of the OECD, where yep. at the same time, in terms of university research metrics, we're right up the top. Um, and so there was this issue of, well, how can we keep, how can we do, have uh, uh, such good institutions, such great research, but yet universities not using it, uh, sorry, industries not using it. Yep. Um, and so that translates into the, to the, our clients, which are major research agencies and universities, who are looking to say, well, how do we produce future innovators? How do we create the people that are going to to address this issue, to translate things for? And when you break down the kind of elements of those, there was definitely this notion that people were coming through, particularly the STEM areas, really without being exposed to this cultural and, and transformational capability, and whether that's grand challenges or whether that's sure. um, uh, the big beacon movements or others, there was a lot of uh, um, uh, opportunity around there to address those types of things, but the universities are at a very early stage and still are at quite an early stage in terms of addressing this. And so we saw this as something that has tremendous impact for universities but was quite early on uh, in the process. The second stage of that, which kind of led to my most recent role, um, is that the universities had been very disconnected with industry in terms of how to work more effectively with, with industry. Um, uh, there were very few genuine um, uh, uh, programs that, that industry were happy with, that universities and students were happy with, which got um, students working on real problems, getting real competencies in not simulated but, but actual environments, yep. uh, and working well and drawing the, the gap so that when a student left their university course, they actually had some real familiarity with industry issues, but also made smarter decisions about what they really wanted to do and what they were good at because they've experienced it. Um, and so both of those drivers were coming in, in, in almost every single circumstance. So yep. here you have a, a leadership, the stakeholders of institutions, whether they be government or industry or students, going, we want this, but yet the institution's really struggling uh, to deliver it. And so I was really looking for for models, for expertise, for yep. history, for a community that might help uh, our clients uh, to achieve that. Yeah, and you and you alluded to the role that you've just taken on, as you mentioned, the transition away from the day to day at um, mm. higher education consulting groups. And what is it that you're doing now? So, um, one of the things I was looking for is to say, in terms of industry to university engagement, yep. who's doing it the best in Australia? Was the question mm. I start I started off with. Yep. Who, who who's in front? And and the idea is I could learn, which I. Again, I said it's always been a yep. goal of mine. But the second thing is, could that be a lever to make some real change? Um, you know, to me, it's about making change. It's not necessarily about the individual career choice. It's that if I feel like I'm making a change, um, uh, I can feel really positive about that. And I found this place called the Capital Market CRC. It was originally a government-funded research entity looking at capital markets um, and uh, um, relatively famous for developing and building a company that um, was bought by NASDAQ, 
called SMARTS yep. that looks at surveillance technology around all major stock exchanges around the world. It's been a really successful uh, output. But when I, I looked at this company, um, they had um, 100 PhDs, all with industry projects, all with industry funding them, um, delivering great outcomes for industry, growing rapidly year on year, winning awards all over the place for innovation and for industry engagement. Um, and um, I looked at them and said, well, th- this, is, this is the group. Um, mm. Let's go and you know, find out about it. And, and, um, and fortunately, um, uh, my network being what it was, I knew some people who were there and, and they, went, they were looking for a, uh, um, some new leadership in there to, to take them to the next level and to expand what they were doing. And so serendipitously, serendipitously again, um, I, I joined that organisation. Um, they basically have uh, uh, three component parts. So one is research into financial markets, yep. whether that might be exchange markets or off-exchange uh, off markets, um, uh, uh, including things like new, ones, new work in energy markets, uh, which is a big topical issue in Australia uh, at the moment yep. with a lot of uh, energy problems. And the second thing is health markets, um, and particularly the financial aspect of health markets, the payments, the you know, uh, duplication, uh, double charging, overcharging, uh, transparency of those markets. So they do research in those and have a very large research team, which is mainly made up of software engineers um, and data scientists looking at how do you go from the old process of analytically looking at stuff to creating software and artificial intelligence engines that, 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 are, that are much better at looking at massive amounts of data. So we're not talking about big data in the traditional sense. We're talking sure. about terabytes per second of data like, yep. you know, in enormous volumes um, where physical intervention is not really there. The, the third part of the business is translating that into industry. And they've been very good at creating companies. They have uh, a dozen or so um, uh, corporate entities that translate and eventually they get um, transferred completely as, as sold off into, into the market. And so I was really interested in what parts have they got right? How did they do this? How did they get industry to to pay for this? How did they um, get How did they get students to come in this way? How did they create an entrepreneurial environment um, in a non entrepreneurial frame? So government sponsored research is not really an entrepreneurial frame. Um, yep. Very limited, high governance. How do you make this work? Um, so I was really interested in it, and um, I've been lucky enough to to join, and I've been there for a month, so I'm still wet behind the ears again. Um, it's uh, not the first time, won't be the last time, but uh, that's, uh, that's uh, what's um, uh, keeping me occupied at the moment. Um, and, but at the end, it's still the same thing. How can we change and get, that, um, uh, uh, get the relationship between industry students um, and education much, much closer? That's what I'm hearing. That's that's the that's the aspiration from your the standpoint of being this uh, lifelong learner on steroids that you are. That that's really the part of what's driving you is what I'm hearing. Is that fair? That's fair. Very fair. That's you know, um, I, I, it's not that it's something that I think is broken. No, um, I, I just think it's something that is unrealized in terms of its potential. Yeah. And so we've we've just got a few minutes left, but um, uh, if you know, so we have a lot of um, we have a lot we have academic leaders listening. We have change agents that are down lower in the the organization, but are trying 
trying their darndest to get things to change. Um, you've had such a wealth of experience up, down, and around. What what would you what would you leave? Uh, what message would you leave uh, as advice for for those people trying to make uh, change in in education, higher education in particular? Um, uh, the the one I, I guess is that change brings a certain level of uncomfort um, mm. uh, to people and and particularly academic leaders who are, you know I, I, these are my friends as well as people that I I work sure. with. Um, yeah. can be put in a position of being very uncomfortable about how the change is um, uh, uh, and um, being in a position of quite a lot of authority, quite a lot of standing, but then entering a room really where where that um, uh, comes to the table. But there are other challenges that, uh, that need to address and, and comfort uh, through it. Um, the, despite all that, um, my view is that you can own the process at the same time. You can be part of these changes, but it means letting go um, yourself and allowing yourself to be part of that change process. Um, What quite often happens that I see, despite the the tone which may be critical of academic leaders, is that the business people that go in do the same thing. They believe that academics don't have an ability to change. They believe that academics aren't going to listen to them, that aren't going to respect, that they aren't going to be able to change, and that is as equally incorrect. Yeah. Um, and, and both parties have to realise that each other's got to come to the table and drop their barriers down um, and look at it as how, how they can make changes. I have not seen a single university client, and we've acted in the US and Australia, that doesn't have tremendous opportunities for change. Yeah. Um, the intellectual capital and even a medium-sized university in Australia, Canada, US, uh, um, U, uh, um, uh, US is left. tremendous. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, that, that's, that's the main thing that I would leave is don't fear it. Join it. Uh, and you, will, you should have the confidence that you will be able to come out at the end with a much better result as, as a result of doing that. And we'll leave, you, we'll leave with that last word. Thank you for, for joining us t- t- no today, David. Thank you. You've been listening to Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education. A special thanks to our guest, David Wright. Help transform higher education. Join the movement to unleash a new generation of innovators by learning more at bigbeacon.org. Join us next week, same time, same channel, in our quest to transform higher education. Thank you for tuning into Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education. Please join Dave Goldberg soon for another edition. Listen every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Business Channel. For additional information about our programs or to find out about the next show, please visit bigbeacon.org. We'll talk again very soon. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.